And so I literally would study throughout the day. I'd pull the vent out. I'd put the CPAP mask on myself. I'd put it in different modes. I'd read more. I'd get a flight. I'd apply it. Always stay curious. <laughs> Take a drink because I'm about to ask you some questions. All right. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. Before I introduce the guests, I want to take a quick second to thank you guys. The messages, the reviews in iTunes, and the new friendships support me on this mission daily. The response to the podcast has been overwhelming, so thank you. Thank you for telling your friends about it, and thank you for purchasing an occasional Medic Mindset t-shirt and sticker. Your purchase of those really helps offset the cost of producing the show. In this episode, we pull back the curtain a bit on a well-known educator, podcaster, and flight medic. He's the founder and CEO of a critical care educational company, FlightBridge Ed. I'm a listener of his podcast, and I've attended one of his courses and had the honor to form a friendship with him over the last year, and I want to share him with you. In this episode, you'll hear me refer to FAST 18. This was a conference that he and his team put on in 2018, and if you missed that conference and this episode leaves you wishing you hadn't, there's a chance to fix that because there's a FAST 19. I'm going, and I hope to see you there. The details for that conference are in the episode and in the show notes. For now, I want you to meet Eric Bauer. We discuss critical care topics like acid-base balance, intubation, ventilators, and EKGs, some leadership topics like mentoring, and I even get a bit of marriage advice out of him. I caught up with him after he had taught for eight hours straight, and he saved some energy for me and you. Listen in as I pick the brain of the man You want to know if you have any interest in becoming a flight medic or a better ground medic. I just adore this guy, and I have no doubt you will too. Thanks for being on the show. Are we starting? We've been recording the whole time. Oh, great. We got the clinky of the ice. We got everything. Nice. You got your right, literally your right hand man next to you. That's what I call it. Is is Mike your right hand man? He is. I mean, that's the way it looks from the outside view. I have a right-hand man in life, and that is him. Mm-hmm. And then I have a right-hand bulldog oh, named right. Gusser at home. He doesn't do much. He sleeps. Where does Gusser sleep? Oh, he sleeps in his bedroom. In his bedroom. <laughs> Thanks for meeting up with me. We've been talking about this for a while. Mm-hmm. The Flight Bridge Ed guys are in Texas. Yeah. Hot wind. It's a hot wind. It's a hot wind it's out hot. there. <laughs> I want to start with a memory. The very first time I spoke at a conference, it was in Wisconsin, and you came up to me about five minutes before I was going to speak. And I really didn't think I was going to be nervous because I lecture for a living. It's yeah. Not, it's a different thing at a conference. I, w- I just kept drinking water. Like, I was thirsty, nervous. It was... Dry mouth. It was real. And you handed me this Flight Bridge Ed challenge coin. And it's not just any challenge coin. You don't just give them out. Like, people can't buy them that I know of. No. Nope. It had a number on it. I remember I said to you, this has a number on it. I want to thank you for that because much of my life, I haven't felt like I belonged. In that moment, I really felt like I kind of like, I was like, oh, like I'm a number in this tribe, right? It's, it's, uh, it meant a lot to me. And I wondered what the question I wanted to ask you is how do you decide to give those to people? Hmm. You know, I do a lot of things, things like that just by uh, instinct, just you know, what comes on my heart, 
you know, I, I'm all about trying to recognize other people and, and make them feel comfortable. I know how hard it was for me to build Flatbridge Ed. And, you know, I was really kind of the first pre-hospital critical care podcast. You know, I mean, there was increment out there and, and I just had no help. And so I, I know how hard it is. And I think that that's one of the most important things that I can do is try to make people feel comfortable and that they're they're worth something. And, you know, because I, I know how it was for me when I, uh, in high school, I would take an F rather than speak. Mm-hmm. And I was a really good student, and I would not get up in front and speak. You know, people I see that I believe in and uh, see a connection with, if I feel like that is something that would mean something to them, I, I, I've done that. Um, what number are you up to? We've given 50 away. Nice. Yeah, And we gave a lot away to specific speakers at Fast 18, and mm-hmm. I just ordered a new allotment. Nice. So from 51 to 100. What's going to become of those? We'll just have to see. I want you to sit with me and during the conversation, remember that not every single medic mindset listener, they may not know what Flight Bridge Ed is. Uh, Most people I talk to, they say, right, yeah, I know that podcast. And that's how I first came upon it. But it is so much more than a podcast. What is it? Now? Yeah. Now, you know, it's, I think, a very diverse education company. We have really built on accident. You know, it was started off of the podcast, and it was started off of really an idea and a and a vision I had on just wanting to educate. That's all it was. Um, and now it's evolved into my full-time job. You know, we really try to focus on pre-hospital critical care education, uh, really for transitioning from uh, maybe the streets, paramedics, or the nursing side of things, ER, ICU, into the flight side. Really, anybody that's looking to become a critical care or a better provider, um, that's, that's I think, what we are now. That's why I wanted to get you on Medic Mindset, because I think many Medic Mindset listeners are the street medics. When I poll my students, when I ask them when they're in their second semester of five, I, you know, I ask them, tell me your five, 10-year goals. More than 50% say, I want to get into flight medicine. I think a lot of people have their eye on that as a goal. How would they prepare to take this certification if they didn't take your class? How does one do that? Talk to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's very specific to the person. Um, I never took a review class or a critical care class before I took my FPC. I'm, I'm very self-driven. So, you know, I just immersed myself in the topic and felt pretty confident in my test-taking ability. And I didn't know what to expect. I mean, obviously, I was nervous and, and I passed. I've had non-paramedics that are in paramedic school come take our review class and be sharp as a tack. So I think it is all based on that individual. It doesn't mean you have to take a review class uh, to be successful. It is, it's all in, in your personality. You know, honestly, you, you get a lot of the content on the podcast. You, you know, do. it's just in digestible, smaller chunks. You know, you don't necessarily have to take the review class. I think it does give you a very broad understanding of critical care medicine and what you may see in the flight environment. I think that's one thing that separates us from other companies is that we, and you've taken our class, Mm -hmm. we really try to teach the critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's more important for me and Ashley and Mike and Bruce, you know, those are the core four, um, obviously, that teach, that we stay on task and teach what's on the exam. But really, that's second. The first thing is understanding the critical thinking, and then we add the evidence-based practice. What's mm-hmm. current? I want you to leave the class and be able to go out and take care of a patient. I love getting email. God, 
what you just talked about in class, I just had that and I was able to pick up on it and I was able to, to apply it. I was listening to the podcast on the way down here and I was listening to Acidosis Rodeo and the reason I was listening to it, I've listened to it before, but the reason I was listening again is I asked someone who attended Fast 18, she's coming back to go to Fast 19 as well and I, I asked her, you know, how did you first come across Flight Bridge Ed? What do you think of it? You know, what's your impression of it? Her response was that on the podcast, you do it. This is true for your course as well. You do an excellent job of explaining really, really deep pathophys concepts and bundle them into understandable packets. She said that acidosis rodeo blew her away. She said it just something clicked for her, right? Like she's tried to learn those concepts. That's cool. I love acid-based balance. It's something I teach. The episodes that you made... It's just like one click above core curriculum. It's kind of like application level, talking mm-hmm. about, you know, vents and, and things like that. You mentioned this concept, and I mentioned it uh, on the episode with Tyler Christofoli of Medic Mindset of episode 17. I mentioned, I asked him about this concept that I got from you, and yeah. the concept was uh, the idea of death signs. He had completely different ones than you. He mm-hmm. kind of went down a route of like vital signs. Yeah. But if I remember yours, they were more like physical signs. Yeah. If you have somebody that is... You know, just have that has that death stare. Um, you know, they have that that tripoding demeanor. And I always remember this on the ambulance. You know, those those patients that you're like, all right, can you get your legs up on the gurney? Let's strap you down. They look right through you. Their legs are on the ground. They will not put their legs up. Yeah. To me, that is a sign that that patient. That's just from experience. That patient's about to to, to die or tire out. Um, and I use that in the classes because I think it's funny when you look back at what we used to do, right? You have patients sitting up and they're, they're in respiratory failure and you're trying to get them to sit up and put their legs up because of why? Because we're going to lay them down and then they die on you, right? It's the opposite of what they need. And, and, and that's where we now innovate with head elevated 30 degrees and things like that. So I use that as a segue. I think somebody that's striderous. Always be very prepared, have a surgical airway out ready, and just be prepared. If you have somebody that's, you know, whether that's a burn patient or this is epiglottitis or, you know, anything like that, and they're striderous or very hoarse like that, you know, I think it comes back to being proactive. And that's just, again, based on experience, you know, and, and, and maybe I've just had bad luck. I always, I always want to be prepared. So that's, that's another one. And then, I think when you look at a trauma patient, and I think this is something that's that's becoming more and more prevalent in our industry as far as teaching and research, but you know, you have somebody with a systolic less than eighty and tidal CO two less than twenty five. That's a bad situation, especially in trauma. I mean, you know, based on Dan Davis's study in, in Dave Vera, you know, they're they're a few minutes away. So those are three right off the top of my head as far as clinical signs that you have a patient that's not doing well. Then the last one I would say is a trauma patient. If you get a trauma patient and they're diaphoretic, that's not a good thing. You know, it's those types of clinical signs that I've just seen over and over and over. And probably the majority of these I've seen on the flight side, you know, because of the acuity of the patients where you just start seeing the same things. You're like, man, that's note to self. That's a bad situation. Mm -hmm. Start putting those patterns together. Yeah. All right. So I asked some people who know you to do something really hard. And that is I asked them to only pick one word to describe you. And they all hate me right now (laughs) because they all wanted to send me paragraphs or long emails. 
it was instantaneous. I knew exactly what word for me, and that was loyal. Just watching you uh, with your team, the Flight Bridge Ed team, with your friends, in your marriage, I've seen you be profoundly loyal to the people that you're close to. Mike Verkest, who's sitting here, do you remember the word that you said? Okay, hang on. Let's get you on here. My word was generous. Simple. And it's in everything that you do, whether it's interaction with the students all the time, the constant emails and texts, phone calls, to just me personally, with your family, with complete strangers. Generous. I don't know. There's nothing else to say. Thank you. This is kind of awkward. Yeah, I was going to just keep being awkward. Just (laughs) deal with it. When he told me generous, I was like, oh, man, I've, already, I've got an example. Like We've spent very little, limited time together, but I've got an example. I don't even know if you remember this, but when you were in Austin, you told me that y'all had bought like 20 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. No, it was 40. It was 40 boxes. It was our last day, and they had all the boxes to sell, and she was, smiled at me, a little, <laughs> little 10-year-old. You know, I was like, well, how much are they? And so I just bought them all. Mm-hmm. She lit up. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Olvera said bold. Hmm. Just to elaborate on that one, because sometimes bold can have the negative connotation. By bold, he meant um, innovative. Uh, Dr. Ann Tevy said unwavering. Chris Meeks said inspirational. And Ashley, your wife, she said passionate. And I only gave him one word. Um, And it was so cool to me that everybody came up with a different word as well. Yeah. You mean a lot to a lot of people. So I've been asking this question of clinicians I respect, some doctors. I asked Tyler Christofoli. And so I'm curious what your answer will be. Oh, gosh. Have you ever thought about sedating someone prior to chemically cardioverting with a denison? Has it ever crossed your mind? (laughs) It never even occurred to me that we would even do that. I'm like, it's just a second, right? It's just a little second of discomfort. But a student asked me that, and I was like, well, no, we don't do that. But what's your thought process with that? Here's how I've always looked at medicine. And, and you know, this this may be my non-compassion side, is I've never, ever had a problem. If I have to make a decision for patient care, and it's even going to hurt the patient, whether that's an I.O., if that's, you know, whatever that is, I have no problems doing it. I, like, I don't even... I don't miss a beat. Well, let me ask you this, because this is the question I ask myself. Why not? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it comes back to what are we going to get? Imagine it's Ashley, right? Oh, I'd light her ass up. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> right? They're medics at the, yeah. at the house right now. Yeah, yeah. She's in SVT. She's, or maybe she goes to the hospital, right? It's, sure. t- it's time to do it. It's time to get her out of SVT. Why not, why not like disassociate her a little bit before giving yeah. her the adenosine? I'm not trying to push you in that yeah. direction. I'm trying to get you to visualize. I it. just, I just don't, I don't, I don't think so. I try to really keep the medicine side very pure, and I, I just don't. You know, if is it needed? You know, I'm not saying I can't be convinced, um, but my instinct is is telling me no. You know, yes, there are certain patients that will have that that. You know, grab their chest, yeah. and you see. Well, I've seen some pretty. Lever, I've seen you know? some discomfort. Oh yeah, I I, th- I think you also have to look at too. There's variables that I see as 
you know, not everybody responds to medications the same. I mean, I've given a milligram of Versed to somebody and knocked the respiratory drive out. I've given 10 milligrams of Versed to somebody and it didn't even touch them. Right. So I think that that's the thing that you have to you worry about is what medication are you going to give, number one? What if you do have somebody in SVT and you give them even a 10 to 15 milligram dose of ketamine and that induces some rage. I mean, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. And now you have another problem. Right. What if it knocks a respiratory drive out? That's the thought process I wanted to hear. And that's also the response I got from Dr. Jarvis was the risks of sedating someone. Uh, the risk benefit ratio just is off on yeah, that one. I agree. Because the benefit is like, okay, you're sparing them a little bit of discomfort, but it's yeah. not the end of the world. Right. You want to know what Tyler said? Sure. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. Oh, I want to know. <laughs> hmm. Would I consider sedation for a chemical cardioversion? I'm going to say no, and here's why. So if we are considering using the chemical route, using a drug like adenosine, it is probably because the patient is in stable condition. Otherwise, we would be cardioverting them. So I have a patient with a narrow complex tachycardia, and I assume that they are stable enough for me to uh, start an IV and then give them some sort of pharmaceutical agent to delay that conduction to the AV node. My answer is going to be no, I would not. And that's only because I'm not going to use adenosine to cardiovert them. I'm going to use diltiazem. I'm going to use a benzothiazepine that's more selective to the AV node. And the reason is because, uh, number one, adenosine hurts. It hurts like hell. Patients complain that it feels like they're getting kicked in the chest. And so that's not good. I don't want to put my patient through that. Uh, and two, if it turns out that it's an atrial rhythm in origin, and it's not something like an AV nodal reentry tachycardia, then I'm going to have to start deltaism either way, because I'm only temporarily blocking the AV node. And then once that wears off and the A1 receptors are no longer bound to adenosine, then that rhythm is going to kick right back in. The patient will be no better off than they were before, except they feel a large thump in their chest and they are not happy with me. Um, but if I were to use adenosine, I don't see anything wrong with giving a little bit of retrograde amnesia in the form of Versed. So I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Ginger. I told him that medic mindset, and, and people know this by now, it's not a gotcha show. I'm not trying to trip you up. I only want to make you sound smart and look pretty. But I asked Tyler to send me a scenario that you might think through out loud on a podcast. That I might think through? Yeah. Oh, great. Like right now. The scenario is a septic patient. They're hypotensive and they're in AFib with RVR. The sending physician wants to start an amio drip because the rate is 170 to 180. You turn up the Levifed and the blood pressure comes up to 112 over 70, but the patient remains tachycardic. I'm guessing at that rate, 170 to 180. At what point is it okay to think about rate control and what agent is best? You know, I had this conversation today with the class, and I think, um, you know, it's very, very important when you have a fast rate, you know, and I think ACLS really fails us here. You know, you ask the paramedic, standard paramedic, and you say, what would you classify a narrow complex rate greater than 150? And everybody was going to say SVT. I was old school. I was taught 160. But that's not the case. And we know that the 220 minus your age can be sinus tach. Obviously, AFib with RVR, you know, are they standardly in AFib? We know, our, you know that that's essentially sinus tach in AFib. So I think you have to look at why is the fever causing this. 
hypovolemia. Um, you know, blood pressure now has come up. You know, I think I'm pretty leery about just jumping in and, and treating the rate like that. I think, you know, you have to wait a little longer, see what's going on. It's probably compensatory. Having a knee-jerk reaction uh, and treating that with amiodarone or, or really any antiarrhythmic is the wrong approach. And um, I think you have to give it time for things to happen. You know, what, what medications have they been on prior to you arriving? And then specifically look at you know, start from the airway side, right? Hypoxia, I say hypoxia, hypovolemia, and fever. Those are the three main reasons why somebody's going to be tachycardic. You know, what's the cardiac output? Is it a result of a low cardiac output? Is the SVR starting to, to vasodilate because you're moving from that hyperdynamic sepsis to a colder sepsis? I guess my answer is I would not treat the rate. I would treat the overall symptoms, and, and, and I would guess that that rate would slowly come down. You know. Yeah. And and I guess like uh I'm thinking like in hospital, let's say this patient sits there for hours and they feel like they've uh gotten their volume corrected, they've gotten, you know, the container size corrected and they just stay in AFib with R V R, I guess just because not not because it's like a sinus tack A V R AFib. It's more like a like the A V gates just opened up for some reason, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if I if that if that was the case, um, I would obviously want to know what medications are on. Are they mm. currently in AFib? Um, you know, is this a new onset? Are they are they on an anticoagulant? Right. I mean, you don't yeah. want to convert that. Um, so just to slow it down, I mean, I think the safest way to go would be cardizem, mm-hmm. and I would go cardizem over amiodarone, and uh, and and try that. When I sat in on the course, you made a point to say that. You were talking about Scarbosa criteria, and you referred to the person that came up with the criteria as a woman. And I remember sitting there and just feeling like a dummy that didn't realize it was a woman. And I came up to you afterwards, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this whole time, I didn't even know it was a, a woman created this criteria. And you said, yeah, I do that on purpose. Yeah. Uh, what's that about? You know, one of the things I've always really been sensitive about even when I was on the grand ambulance and, and, and I talked to my wife about this and Mike and I have talked about this is, is, you know, I'm all about equality and I'll, I'm all about, um, I really do struggle when, when I see women not paid attention to, or you have a partner and you go on a scene and everybody's looking right at you because you're the male or, you know, my wife tells me stories where she'll walk in and, and, and I have to ask. She doesn't tell me these things. I mean, walk in, there may be a male nurse in there, and the patient automatically, or, or she just walks in, and they automatically think she's the RN, right? And, 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 and Mike has told me stories. He worked with the same partner, Julianne Silver, forever, and she was a paramedic. and He was intermediate, and they always assumed he was a paramedic. Is that right? And so that really bothers me. Um, I just never, ever want somebody to feel second you know and so i always make it a point that you know i think we are in a male dominated world and i want people to realize that there are some phenomenal women out there that are doing some amazing things right and and that's just um i've never uh i was bullied when i was in middle school um it was just one guy but it but it's impacted me for forever and um would have never made it through middle school if I wouldn't had sports, had that outlet. Um, and that, so that's always something sensitive. And I think it comes back to that is I just don't want anybody ever to, to, uh, you know, 
look down on somebody. You also said that, and this was new for me, This there were so many things in that course that I feel like, you know, I know stuff, uh, yeah. but there were so many things that just kicked me up one little notch, stuff that I hadn't heard before. And one was that, I think it was they used EEGs, they measured pain responses to yeah. intubation mm-hmm. as compared to open chest surgery or something like that. Yeah. Intubation was how many times more painful? Or was it a number? It, it was just off the charts. It, it, yeah, I don't have a number. So I've actually asked for that study. That was a study that uh, Jeff Beer and Dave Overa have referred to many, many times, difficult airway course. But I think it was very impactful when I heard that. It made a lot of sense that we have to understand that our innovated patients, when we innovate a patient, I mean, think back, if you're listening, of some of the patients you've innovated. And when we're using just DL, standard lymphoscopes, right, a lot of the industries using video which you're a little bit more delicate and and gentle but think about some of the pressure i mean i remember some of these patients i've innovated in a, and being so large or no neck in some of the positions you're in you know out in the out in the in the weeds um where sometimes i felt like i was going to pull that one just go through their throat you know mm-hmm. just because they were that big or heavy and we have to understand that that is so painful mm-hmm. and think about the increases in icp that are associated with that and so I think that that was very impactful to me that we have to be very good about treating the pain and then treating the pain ongoing once they're innovated, having a plastic tube in your throat and being on a mechanical ventilator or being ventilated, that if we don't think about that, and I think that's where some EMS protocols around the country really fail, you know, and that comes back to medical direction where, you know, maybe they just have a tiny little dose. I mean, the things that I've been told and heard... I, it just blows my mind where they're they're able to paralyze long acting but there's they have really nothing to give for sedation i mean that is just barbaric yeah you know so i think we just it just reminds us how painful that is and that, that that's something we would never think you know and i think mm-hmm. a lot of times in in medicine and life it's the things we would never consider that really are the things that stand out i think to my first rsi um this is back when we were calling it rapid sequence intubation my partner was a paramedic. I was the intermediate, what is now an advanced EMT, and she was going to let me intubate. It was when we first got these protocols, and so she wasn't really well-practiced. Neither was I. None of us were. Yeah. And um, we didn't wait. I didn't wait long enough for the sedation and the paralytic to start working. And when I went to do laryngoscopy, this patient who had been, so far we couldn't get any pain response out of them. We, it was a hemorrhagic stroke. We could get no movement at all. Everything was just... We thought nothing was home at all. She moved one of her hands up towards me. When you mm-hmm. went in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I had done like a nail bed pain response and I tried to get some pain response. Which that, that was always my test. Like if you can pass my nail bed test response. Yeah. With a, like a pin. Uh-huh. You got me sold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, when you said that uh, about the pain, that really, it emphasizes the importance of sedation, proper sedation. Yeah. So I've been working with a flight nurse. I don't, I don't know that you know this. She went to uh, Fast 18. Her name is Nisa, and she's starting a podcast. And her podcast is going to be called The Q Word, and it's for nurses. It's going to be a similar, I think, the route she's going is a similar kind of genre as medic mindset, but for nurses. Kind of storytelling and inserting a little bit of clinical info into storytelling. She went to Fast 18. I've been um, helping her out with some stuff, and she said... And I didn't even realize I, I was doing it. But she said a lot of times when I give her advice, 
I'll say, well, Eric, Eric mentioned such and such. She said that she knows that you have a mentor in Alan Wolf. She was just kind of marveling at the ripple effect of mentoring. Alan took the time and that you'll take the time and it just keeps going. Like it's paying it forward. It's something we need more of in EMS. I've been watching you with Chris Meeks. You're role modeling for me to how to try to be a better mentor for her. Do you think that your mentor has a mentor? Did you ask him to be your mentor? Have you ever told him you're me- he's your mentor? Yeah, so that relationship with Alan is really interesting because it didn't start off that way. I mean, it didn't start off. It started off very professionally. I mean, geez, I was just a flight paramedic, and he was the director of clinical education for the entire company. So I think that was the first time I got really humbled in mechanical ventilation. You know, and that's not definitely his strong area, but, I mean, he definitely understands mechanical ventilation from a high-level management education perspective. And, and he, you know, and that's where I was lacking, was, was looking at the big, broad picture. And so we had we had some battles. We had some arguments. And I felt like for a while I was trying to kind of like seeking his approval. I don't like not feeling like I'm doing good. I'm a perfectionist. And still to this day, you send him something, you better be ready. He'll, <laughs> he'll red pin that thing. And so that's the thing I, 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 I loved. You know, it, it was kind of a, a bittersweet thing. I, I, it made me angry internally but then it made me realize my deficiencies and so then i started realizing just slowly over a few years and you know he was one of the biggest naysayers against flight bridget and so now to really see that he supports us yeah you know that's a big deal it gets me emotional i mean it really does that i would earn his trust and uh, prove that we're doing the right things so that has been amazing to see that that evolution. Have I told him he was my mentor? Yes, I have told him that. He's got a pretty amazing way of doing that. He'll never tell you, and I think Dave Olvera would say the same thing, he will never tell you the answer. If you ask him advice, he's never going to tell you the answer. Yeah, and you said that he took a, takes a red pen to things? Uh, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today without him and him constantly putting me in my place. I'll give you an example. I, I wrote uh, a couple years ago when I was the clinical education manager, and he was my direct boss. He wanted me to write the entire protocol exams. I wrote about 150 questions. And so I, I submitted that to him, and, and uh, oh my gosh. Like, I got that Word document back, and it was freaking filled <laughs> with red comments, red comments, red comments. You know, and, and you start going through it, and you start seeing things that, that you... You almost have blinders on. You're like, oh my gosh, why would I put that? Why would I do that? So I think it's really shown me that you always need to have somebody look at your stuff, edit your stuff, and validate what you're doing. When Nisa first came to me and said, hey, will you take a listen to this podcast? There's basically two routes I can go with it. I can either be her cheerleader and just be like, yep, great, keep going, like, good job for making something. Or I can take kind of a harder line that you have to build some rapport first and I've got to get her trust where she knows I'm doing it because I care. And that is when you give like the constructive feedback. If she hadn't have said the words, I'm hoping you can mentor me with this. I might have just thought she was just kind of like wanting the cheerleader. It's literally saying the word mentor. I was like, oh, okay. Like you want an actual, you want some hard feedback. You want some coaching. And you've talked about mentoring a lot. I think in various lectures that you do, you talk about the importance of mentoring. 
Do you remember the one slide that sticks out? There's one slide that I think I'm th- it's got. I've got it in my head right now, and I think it 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 totally ca- encapsulates mentoring. A mentor critiques ninety percent of the time, and they they cheer ten percent of the time. I mean, I bet that's I mean, where I got this whole cheerleader versus coach thing. Is that that I'm sure you planted that seed that's grown for me in Wisconsin when you did the keynote. I learned a ton about mentoring and realized like I wasn't mentoring anyone. I wasn't even. I would probably miss those opportunities when people were asking for it and I didn't realize it. Thanks for bringing up the importance of it because we need more of it uh, in the EMS particularly. I think mentoring is, uh, you know, I think you also have to be true to yourself. I've definitely found that, that your bandwidth is only so, so big. And, um, you know, to really give somebody the time they need, you know, I think you need to have that talk with them and say, you know, just understand I'm I'm probably going to be more critical then not you have to do that in the right way but as long as you have that dialogue right off the bat i had that dialogue with chris mm-hmm. and it's not that i'm i'm, I'm going to tell you you're doing things wrong but uh, when you're learning you you're, you got to point that stuff out and i think you have to have that dialogue and understanding that that's fair game yeah right yeah that other definitely. person has to be receptive to that or, or it's never going to work right yeah and the way to frame that, what I've told my students that I give heavy, heavy constructive feedback, what I tell them is I would not be sitting here for this length of time giving you all this feedback if I didn't think you were worth that investment. Yeah. The ones that really show me like they want to be good, or they're the ones I'm like, how long do you have? I'll give you every bit of feedback I've got. That's what I saw in Chris. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, he's 20 freaking one years old. He's in our review class and he's firing off these answers. I had no clue how old he was. And he came up to me at, at the break. This was in uh, Poto, Oklahoma. And he told me, he's like, you know, I, I've only been a medic a year and a half. And he just was so hungry, and you could see how eager he was. Mm-hmm. And I told him after the class, I said, I said, you keep up what you're doing. I said, I'll help you. I said, you'll fly at your three mark, year mark. I just knew he would, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so when I see things like that, when I see talent like that or somebody that's that eager, man, I get excited. I do want to talk about vents for a second, ventilators, because uh, you've written a book about ventilators, and it seems to be something that you're really, re- really interested in. Why do you pick that to be an area that you care so much about? Well, that wasn't always the case. I mean, I was, I was, um, I get really obsessed with things until I master something. Things like that come upon me, maybe based on identifying a deficiency. So the first love I had in EMS was twelve lead interpretation, and then I got to the point where I felt like I really had a strong grasp on even the high-level stuff, kind of lost interest. And then all of a sudden I was handed a mechanical ventilator. Um, I had already flown a few years, but, you know, this, this was way back, and, you know, we didn't have any ICU-level ventilators where you actually had to understand things a little bit in more depth, right? It wasn't just turn it on and turn a rate and a total volume. And then I realized really fast that I had no clue. I, I get a little OCD, and I had a lot of downtime in that flight job in Arizona. I was flying in uh, Chinle, Arizona, and Previous to that, I was at another base. It was very slow. So I had a lot of time. I was there for two weeks at a time. I had a whole house to myself. And so I literally would study throughout the day. I'd pull the vent out. I'd put the CPAP mask on myself. I'd put it in different modes. I'd read more. I'd get a flight. I'd apply it. I'd try to do things that I'd learn. I'd realize, oh, that was a mistake. I'd reverse that. You know, I kind of used those patients as guinea pigs, really. And that's how I learned. And then just it slowly just evolved. You know, it's a it's more of a journey, right? Just constantly trying to make myself better and surround myself with with 
with people that can add to that knowledge, you know, and, and being humble enough to hear something and go, wait a second, you know, that's not, that's not what I thought it was. Yeah. And then researching that and asking questions and then, and that's, that's, that's how it's evolved. Um, that's actually my favorite experience is thinking I know something and then someone smarter than me comes along and just kicks my feet out from under me. Because <laughs> honestly, like once you kind of get some mastery of concepts, it doesn't happen that often. So when right. someone can be like, but did you think about this? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That feeling. With the podcast, you're giving, I mean, you're giving away tons of free education. I mean, that's just, it's just sitting there for anybody yeah. to use. There's a graduate of our program who works in a rural service. He does 911 EMS. They also do inter-facility transfers, and so occasionally, and they have a vent, okay? Mm. His level of education for that vent is pretty minimal, right? Some type of in-service that they did, and he's got figured out. He's the kind of guy that, he came to me, he said, we have this vent, like, what do I need to know? And I told him about your book, told him about your podcast. For all the other listeners that haven't gone out and asked that question, but are getting thrown vents on the regular, this happens, I mean, it just, it happens, just visualize this guy, right? He's really good at being a paramedic, really mm-hmm. good. He is a very conscientious. He wants to take good care of people. He's just not equipped with the education. What are two or three things you can teach him about Vince in general to help him be equipped on those transfers? Is there anything you can say in a podcast to help him? A lot of that comes down to what ventilator somebody's using. I mean, there really is a lot to that. I can say one thing and then that ventilator not have that capability, um, which sometimes that's bad because it doesn't give the paramedic or the nurse the ability to make that adjustment. And I think that's the big thing that I realized mechanical ventilation wise is that there's a big difference in transport mechanical ventilation in comparison to respiratory care in an ICU or a hospital. There is night and day difference. The vibration, the movement, and the equipment that we have, even the top-of-the-line ventilators, when you look at LTV-1200s and Ravel's, the Hamilton T1, I think the Hamilton T1 is probably the purest transport ventilator we have out there. But, you know, the majority of the industry has the LTV-1200s, the Ravel's. I mean, that's probably the most popular. And even though those are the, considered some of the top-of-the-line, there are some big limitations based on the equipment. I would have to know more about the vent, and, and then I could answer those questions. But I think as far as application goes, I think, number one, understanding minute ventilation. That is one core concept that you've got to understand. You've got to understand how much minute ventilation somebody needs, what's the norm, and the difference between what comes out of the ventilator is not what reaches the alveolar capillary level. So alveolar minute ventilation compared to standard minute ventilation of the vent. The other two things would be how do you apply maneuvers on the vent to fix oxygenation, which is FiO2 and PEEP, and how do you fix ventilation, which is essentially minute ventilation or making sure that rate is slowing down enough and having an ID ratio that allows for exhalation. So little things like that, I think, are a great starting point. You know, those are core concepts. Those are test questions for many organizations to actually get into the flight environment. They'll simply ask you, you know, what is two things you can do to fix oxygenation? If you say change the tidal volume, that's a wrong answer. But we automatically think, oh, well, if I give more breaths per minute, I'm going to make them more oxygenated. And, and that's where you have to think more broadly. You know, why are they in that state? Because they probably have a shunt, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. I was reading through my notes from your 
review course, I wrote down that reciprocal changes in three and AVL alone mean MI. Is that based on a study or is that just your personal, like I've looked at lots of 12 leads and this is what I've seen. So there are studies. Um, I think the doctor out there is ML Matu that that really is pushing that education and that he does refer to studies. You can pull them up on YouTube and he, he's got multiple conference uh, lectures that he's talked about this concept where just even having a reciprocal change in lead three and no ST elevation in one and AVL, that that is diagnostic for a high lateral wall MI. So the ST elevation has not shown up yet. So there was studies. And actually, I think he refers to studies that were done like 50 years ago Mm. where they actually clamped off the CERC or they clamped off the RCA. I think it was the RCA. They want to identify what happened. Did ST elevation appear in T3AVF? And it was interesting. That's not what happened. Reciprocal change showed up in AVL. And so they've done that, and they've reversed that, and the same thing happens in a high lateral wall MI. The first thing that shows up is a reciprocal change in lead three. That's a very early indication, but that is 100% indicative of an MI. And so without that reciprocal change, you have ST elevation, for example, in one and AVL. And if there was no reciprocal change in lead three, that is not an MI. It's definitive. And so why are we saying AVL and lead three? It's because those lead, lead groups in general are reciprocal. But mm-hmm. the two that stick out in our, our twins, I call them twins, that's AVL and lead three. They will always mimic each other. I also wrote down that you said something about, the, I may be way off, I was looking at my notes, but it said three questions that you look at to anticipate the clinical course. And I think this was regarding uh, the need to intubate. And that was swallowing, following commands, and maintaining secretions. So we don't worry about GCS less than eight intubate, right? We got to get rid of that. You have to ask yourself, can they follow commands? Can they control their secretions? And then what is their clinical course? I think those are the three that we focus on. And so that's where you have to really think about, well, what's, what's going to happen an hour from now? You know, what, what's going to happen? Even though my patient maybe has a GCS of 14 or 15, and they're talking to me, they know what happened, but they're repetitive. Mm-hmm. Could this patient projectile vomit once they're in the aircraft strapped to a board? Absolutely. And I think that's probably the hardest part about that decision. If they can't follow commands and if you have any inkling that they're not going to be able to control their secretions, that that is time to, um, you know, take care of that airway. In your review course, you said that the aortic valve is a, a fifth chamber. Did yeah. you say that? Yeah. Where'd you, where did you get that a crazy idea? Uh, um, something I read. Mm-hmm. You know, that that it, it holds so much volume and it has a a mild amount of contraction. The way when that valve opens and closes that it's it's that important to cardiac output. That without it, your cardiac output goes down significantly. If you have an insufficient aortic valve, that was the point I was trying to make. It's so essential to afterload and cardiac output. So what's next with Flight Bridge Ed? You always got something cooking. Our initial roll out of our online course um we've got 700 users already in the Whoa. first four months congrats yeah um i've got the courses all built and um brandon has uh, done a lot of the coding we had a goal of august 1st um i think we're gonna surpass that we'll probably have that live here in a few weeks i started writing a uh, advanced ventilator book and had toyed with having a co-author on that so i did ask tyler to co-author that with me and got fast 19 next year mm-hmm. right it's gonna be a little bit a little bit later in the year is going to be May. You know, things that we learned and things that we can change and 
I loved how you guys put the vendors in the same room. Is that, are you going to do that again? We are. You are? Yeah. That, and let me tell you, that was a last-minute decision. I loved it. The vendors just absolutely loved it. But think about the engagement. Yeah. Constant interaction. It had some unintended consequences. Like, it was just kind of neat because I would go talk to them about their product, and they had also, like, seen the same speakers I had seen, and we talked about what we'd seen, and I'd never seen that before. Yeah. You know, Mike and I started writing a uh, 12-lead book. Um, you know, we, we kind of really? put it on a put it on a back shelf for a little while, but we're, we're hoping to have that done by the first of the year and uh, or, or sometime in the, the first of 19. I thought about when you went on vacation after Fast 18. I thought to myself, I was like, I wonder what he's doing. Like, I wonder if he's working or if he can really relax. You can relax? No, I can't. No? No. I really can't. I mean, I so my computer will always be always be with me. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's with me every second, but sure. I will always be checking emails in the morning. I will always answer emails at night. So this is personal, and we can always cut it out, but I'm curious because I think a lot of medics get feedback from their spouse that, like, they work too much, right? If you're willing to share, like, what's the secret? How have you and Ashley navigated that level of work that you do? If you're willing to share. Yeah, no, I'll share. I mean, she has a, a really phenomenal work ethic as well. She she understands. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have to be in tuned if if she's sitting there and, and we were supposed to do something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know when to close my computer or know when to, to do things. And I've really learned over nine years of utilizing my time. You know, if she doesn't get up till 7, I'm usually up by 4.30. You can ask Tyler. I make he he says I'm one of two people that he can call at four thirty in the morning. and I'm going to answer my phone. Hmm. If she says I'm going to go get ready and take a shower, I'll use that time. Hmm. If I know she's going to work the next two days, that I might put things off and I'll do it when she's not home. That way, I can concentrate on spending time with her. So I think that's the key is is just utilizing your time really wisely and 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 understanding your your spouse. Do you know who Allie LaDuke is? I do. This is what she said. I think what strikes me most about him is he's just so humble. As EMS professionals, if there's one thing to constantly learn and practice, it's simply that. Is that just your nature? Um, I don't know. I don't think when I was young I was very humble. Uh-huh. No. I mean, I think I've learned, uh, you know, with age and making mistakes. And, uh, um, you know, I think you have you have lessons in life that, that may change you. And when flight project started growing and the podcast started growing and, and then I was, I was realizing that I was in a role in education over a region of air methods. And then I was having to QA charts, but these were the same people listening to the podcasts because I can be very critical very easily. Right. I'm a perfectionist. It really made me stop and realize, well, hold on. These are, these are the people that I'm mentoring essentially through the podcast so I can't be one way that way and and be too strong the other way. It's it's very easy, especially if you're very strong as a clinician, to come across the wrong way. I definitely look back at me being a young paramedic and being very aggressive and confident and, and you know, you can easily turn people off. And mm-hmm. I definitely don't want to ever be that way. I mean, that really bothers me. Yeah, you're like the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mike Mike knew me as a as a... Young, you know, a younger paramedic. Um, I mean, I was his FTO. How many years have you known Mike? 22 years. What? Long time. That's a long time. Yeah. 
We used to sit at Station One with our blankies on us, <laughs> playing Madden. Uh, yeah. Madden. Get a call and be all mad. Godly. <laughs> no. Yeah. We we go way back. Hmm. So if someone is the first time they've ever heard of FlightBridgeEd, is it best just to go to the website flightbridgeed.com to start? Yes. You're on Instagram. You're on Facebook. You're on Twitter. Got a twit. So Twitter is at FlightBridgeEd. Uh, Mike's is at Second Shift. And uh, our Facebook account is FlightBridgeEd. And if you haven't ever listened to the podcast, I recommend, if you're my, if you're my student right now, start with Acidosis Rodeo. Yeah, what I would say is don't go all the way back to the very beginning. I would start at the at the newest stuff and work your way backwards. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've actually started over at 137. Wow. Um, that, you know, it may be start, time to start archiving the first 50 of them. You know, I mean, that stuff is 2012, 13, 14. I mean, some of it's out of date. So um, I would definitely start at the newer stuff. I mean, this is going back to 2017 also, but the three Ps of Entitle. I like that too. Yeah, I think that's a that's a hot topic. I get a lot of of uh, eyebrow raises in the review class on that. We could easily get clouded on the whole keep it between thirty five and forty five, and we have to understand why is it low. Being around you guys, the critical care guys, you're the ones that really. It's kind of like you pointed out problems and thinking that I wouldn't have realized a medic would have. Like you put them on a vent, you need to keep their entitlement. What are well, I'm going to say what, how I understand it, and then you correct me. Someone's in DKA, right? They're in metabolic acidosis. You want to put them on the vent, and one of two choices here. Keep them on the entitle that they were on, that they were generating with their own spontaneous breathing. Correct. Or two, if you can get access to their ABGs, you can take their bicarbonate ion and multiply times 1.5 and then add 8. I'm impressed. Well, you taught me that. But you retained it. (laughs) This is the thing I'm telling you about, like the one notch more. I've been teaching acid-base balance for a long time. The fluency of the info is there. So listening to you, I'm like, okay, I've mastered all the material. Now this is like the application level that you've brought me to. Yeah, that's good. That's a very important hot topic because I think when we, um, and and I guess I can shoot a question back to you, as a paramedic instructor, as your primary role, how do you now intertwine that education because you understand so much higher, um, I definitely find this difficult because I definitely think that we're doing our, our paramedics injustice by teaching them keep it between 35 and 45. And that is so incorrect. Mm-hmm. Cause if you get somebody in DK and their entitles 20 and you, Oh, well they're breathing too fast. We need to slow it down. Right. You've just killed them. And so I, that's where I think that, that I struggle with. If we switch this up, how do you, thank you for asking. How do you handle that? what I have said is I try to give them like a buzzword. I tell them like, if you think respiratory alkalosis, if that thought goes through your mind, the first thought that I want you to have is that that is compensation for metabolic acidosis. Don't think it's the primary problem. Like anytime you come across respiratory alkalosis, always assume until proven otherwise, they're compensating for metabolic acidosis. But I think you were asking, how would I incorporate this 1.5 no, exactly what you just had answered mm. is teaching a little bit higher to where they don't just automatically think, oh, this is a hyperventilation mm-hmm. related to, you know, anxiety, whatever, um, you know, minute ventilation is too high. And, and it's it's not compensation that they don't yeah. understand that it's compensation you and know, or get, perfusion. You know? Yeah. 
That, yeah. That's the other side. The three P's are pulselessness, pulse, yep. Yep. perfusion, and pH. Yeah. I do what you do, which is I, I tell them a story. I tell them a story about a case of a DKA patient coming into the ER and the medic giving the handoff report and saying, we've been trying to coach their breathing and get their end title <laughs> up. And so they've got a story. I think that's a, that's a tough job that you have. I think especially uh, as you gain more knowledge and, and bring a lot of the critical care stuff. Because uh, the way my mind works is when I'm teaching like that, I have all this stuff flying in my head. And I want to say it. And mm-hmm. I want to explain it because I, I get so excited about it. And, and I think you can easily muddy the waters mm-hmm. and, and go out too far. I got my, my core curriculum. I know what I'm going to teach. And then what will happen? Here's how it happens. Is there's usually that one student. And they're going to oh, ask yeah. the questions. And I can kind of count on them to ask the questions. And I'll answer it. And I'll watch everybody else's faces to see if they're enjoying that, integrating that. And yeah. if, if we're getting a lot of blank stares, we, I kind of table it. And do offline with that one student. You've had a long day, man. I've been up since 3.30. Jeez. I have. I come down to breakfast this morning. I look over there. He's wide-eyed. And I'm down at breakfast early. He's like, I've been up since 3.15. This is my sixth coffee. Well, it means a lot to get some of your time and to get both of you in the same room. Let me take take your picture. (laughs) Smash together. What else do you want a medic mindset listener to know about Flight Bridge Ed? Always stay curious. Have that just insatiable curiosity. You know, I I look back at my career and I would never trade those years on the ambulance. But I don't know if I could have done it for as long as I mean, this is my 26th year in, you know, and that's fire all the way up through, you know. Fell into the hem side. I think that that definitely saved me. You know, it definitely... I needed those high acuity patients. Um, if you want to be a flight paramedic or a nurse, or if, surround yourself with people that that are going to constantly challenge you, don't. It's all right, you know. Just have that that curiosity. You've talked a lot about collaboration. I appreciate you coming on the show, and I hope uh, this will push a lot of people to Flight Bridge Ed. I completely loved your class. Fast eighteen was. Probably one of my favorite experiences ever. I said it when I was on stage, and that was I just felt like I was in the room with a lot of like-minded people. So, what's going to be your follow-up? I know, I mean, you're 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 speaking at Fast Nineteen. So, what do you? What's my topic? Yeah, what's your topic? I don't know. I've got it written on my whiteboard. It says Fast Nineteen. <laughs> Where's your whiteboard? I have a office at home. Yeah. There's this book called It's called A Room of One's Own. It's about the importance of having a, a little room to work in. Do yeah. you have one? Mm-hmm. A little office. Yeah. Yeah, so it's in there. Yeah, I think that's important. The reason why I ask that is that, that that's something that my my stepdad told me early on before I went to paramedic school is is uh, put your goals somewhere you can see them every day. And I, I did that, and I, I man, I check that thing off every time I I hit one, and it really does it really does help to constantly see it every day. Well, your name was on there, Eric Bauer. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. That's, yeah, it's been really cool. Start yelling, yelling. <laughs> Jen, eh? Jen, eh? So let me tell you a story. One of the things that I got when I was in my internship paramedic school is I got so many VTACs and SVTs. And um, fast forward another three years, I was in a backup ambulance, and this backup ambulance had a life pack 10. 
right? We had Life Pack 12s. So I hadn't messed with a Life Pack 10, honestly, since school. We get this guy, and I use this case. I use this case in our review class. He was golfing. He started having some fluttering in his chest. He called 911. We get there. He's got a rate of about 200. Put him on the monitor. He uh, He's an SVT. So I end up going down the adenosine route. Maxed out adenosine. At this point, he's now unstable. His blood pressure is low. So I, I told him I was going to cardiovert him. He was diaphoretic. And, you know, uh, I gave him um, a small amount of Versed. I did give him some Versed. I got the pads out, or the paddles. <laughs> Charged that thing up, and I, bam, I nailed him. And a big old arc came across. I forgot to put the jelly on the paddles. Right? And he called me a son of a bitch. Boy. Converted him. But I laugh about that now, and it's a really good story, number one, to always remember that if it's equipment you haven't touched in forever, you know, we were so used to using the hands-off pat- patches, I didn't even re- think about the jelly. We had the actual sticky pad things that, that you could put on. We're all absolutely capable of making mistakes like that. What is this? You don't get to be nonverbal like that. Yeah, he absolutely manages it. Absolutely. <laughs> what, what's wrong with Mike right now? <coughs> I don't know. He's made me choke. <coughs> That's where people don't really realize, and Mike can tell you, when I'm home, I'm not about medicine. I'm about yard work and landscaping and being on my tractor and building. Hmm. You know, I've been a contractor for years. I put, I've got a big old, big old huge LED light on my, my zero-turn mower, and I'll mow at 10 o'clock at night. 